Now, the Horror Stories Podcast. Welcome. I'm so glad you're here. I'm Robert Crandall, and I read stories of dread, the macabre, and murder. Stories like the one on this episode. Yes, it's uh, creepy. But first, we have uh, some Buy Me a Coffees to thank and a listener nightmare. Thank you, John and Valerie. Both of them bought me five coffees. Each, that is. <laughs> I want to say, man, thank you so much. It really helps defray the expenses of the podcast, and I really very, very much appreciate it. John says he listens every day at work in the construction business. And I want to thank you so much, John, uh, for your support. This is not the first time John has uh, bought me a coffee. And uh, then Valerie, an Italian listener, all the way from Italy. Uh, Yeah, that's pretty much where Italians live, isn't it? Okay. She also bought me five coffees. And uh, all of this around Christmas time. And she also sent me a note and a nightmare. And she says, Dear Robert, I'm happy to know that your last medical test went well, and I was so very sorry to hear about your illness. It mustn't be easy. Be strong and positive. Well, thank you, Valerie. I was very encouraged by the last visit to the doctor, and I feel very good. And uh, thank you so much for your kind words. She also goes on to say that um, I've never been much interested in horror stories. My father is a big fan of Dario Argento, but that's too violent for my taste. But in 2016, I was looking for new podcasts and I ran into yours and I thought I'd give it a try. What a surprise. It was something charming and totally different from my experience. It was all about suspense, supernatural, and mystery, which I enjoy the most. And she says horror literature is really fascinating. Then uh, she says for a couple of years, I stopped listening to the podcast. I changed jobs and then got back into things. uh, And I realized I missed my two favorite podcasts which was yours and a scientific one. And so I started listening again, and it was like coming home. Well, welcome home. It's nice to have you with us, Valerie. And she she says, I even bought a Lovecraft book and an illustrated version of Tales of Mystery by Poe. Wow, that would uh, sound really interesting. Uh, And she says, I don't usually have nightmares of the horror kind, only of the anxiety type, like running without ever reaching a destination. I do have plenty of weird, mysterious dreams, like this one. She says, I was about to check into a hotel. The hall was large and pretty dark. There was a woman on a desk and another person nearby in the shadow, which I could not identify. And uh, his presence, or that person's presence, disturbed me. Suddenly, I felt a strong feeling of discomfort, and I had no idea why. I just wanted to leave. 
I didn't remember the reason why I went there in the first place. I looked around. I saw a door opened on the wall on my left. Something was on the floor. I went there, and it was a frog made of gold and about the size of my hand. I grabbed it and turned to the exit door. Nobody said anything, so I went out, always with the feeling of discomfort in my heart. Outside, there was a white driveway, and at the end of it, I saw a door gate inside an arch that was standing by itself. The gate closed, and I did not see on the other side. It was a cloudy day with a plain white sky, and everything looked a bit grayish and sad. I walked down the driveway and reached the gate. I opened it. Incredibly, on the other side, it was pouring rain, and I found myself just on the coast of Garda Lake, which, by the way, is not far from where I live. The frog got wet, and it became green and alive. It jumped off my hands into the water and disappeared in the lake with a few splashes. I felt happy and relieved. A few months later, I had a similar dream, only this time I found stone turtles in my grandmother's house and for some reason decided to drop them in a nearby stream of water. They became alive and swam away. I don't know, maybe it's some kind of message that I've been sent. I certainly need to look for water. What do you think? Do you have any idea? Well, Valerie, I'm, <laughs> she says, I'm wishing you the best of luck and everything. A big hug, Valerie. Well, Valerie, here's a big hug right back at you. And I'm sorry, I don't know what that means. I'm not good at interpreting dreams. But thank you for your kind words and for sending that in. And if you have a nightmare or strange dream of any kind or something unusual happened, send it to myhorribledream at gmail.com. And we'd like to read it on the show and share it. Now, for our feature story. A man commits murder and is haunted with guilt that drives him mad. The way he deals with it is very strange. I hope you enjoy The Avenging Phonograph by E.R. Punchon. The Verdict of Suicide During Temporary Insanity The mayor had so confidently anticipated that he experienced no particular sensation of relief when he heard the foreman of the jury actually pronounce the words that assured his safety. It simply seemed to him that no other result had been possible. Every single detail of the crime he had arranged with the utmost care, and with that admirable mixture of prudence, forethought, and determination which had raised him from a barefooted boy selling newspapers in the street to be mayor of the town and one of its most prominent businessmen. No one knew of the connection between him and the dead man, 
even if any chance suspicion of foul play did arise, he was the last man on whom that suspicion would fall, and his heart swelled within him with the consciousness of his absolute and perfect safety. He looked round the court now with that decorous expression of subdued melancholy, the tragic death of a fellow citizen required. And he conceived a scorn for these smug, smiling folk whose self-complacence he could so shatter in a word. If I were just to jump on a chair and say, this man was murdered, and I did it, he thought to himself. How they would all stare and shudder. A grim smile touched his firm set lips, and he was so confident in his own strength that he even played a little with the idea, picturing the horror and consternation of the crowd before he set the thought aside. The court was clearing now, and he went out with the others, who respectfully made way for his worship. The chemist, whose place of business was next to his own, came and walked by his side, and they chatted in subdued tones about this unfortunate business, which had so disturbed the even tenor of this little town's placid life. Yes, but the way he took to die, the way of it, insisted the chemist. Such things may be common enough in great cities, but here one feels it as a blot upon us all, a stain upon the fair fame of the town, he said, waving a lean hand in the air. It is certainly most regrettable, said the mayor but still no one knows what troubles he may have had. But the chemist would not be placated. He hinted that he wished the jury had brought in a verdict of fellow de say. Self-murder is self-murder, he declared, sawing up and down with his lean right hand. And there can be no excuse for it. Still, the mayor urged with a secret smile, it is possible we do not know the whole truth about the affair. We know enough, said the chemist with severity. Besides, he added thoughtfully, he owed me nine and seven pence, which I suppose now I shall never get. The mayor agreed that recovery of this debt was doubtful, and as the chemist turned to enter his shop, he glanced after him with amused scorn. By Jove, he said to himself lightly, I have half a mind to tell him, just to see him shiver. The chattering fool, how he would gasp if he knew. It amused him greatly to think of the look that would spread over the chemist's lean and hollow countenance if he knew the truth, and he allowed his mind to play with this fancy for some minutes. He went up to his office and answered two or three business letters, but he felt he had earned a holiday, and he returned home early. After dinner, which he ate with a keen appetite, he sat down with a good cigar and a glass of weak whiskey and water, and in his mind he went over the whole affair again. 
In the evidence given before the coroner, there had been various mistakes and small discrepancies, all of which he had noticed with keen interest. For example, the smart detective fellow had put the time of death at half-past seven, while in reality it had been two hours later. The mistake had pleased the mayor immensely, as showing how even the police could blunder. Why? What chance had they of finding out the truth when they began by making such a mistake as that? Then again, the doctor had sworn that the death must have been instantaneous, while the mayor knew very well that the dying man had retained his consciousness for some minutes. He had lain and looked up at his slayer, and in his fast-glazing eyes had been a stare of wild amazement, not reproach, not accusation, not anger or threat, only absolute astonishment. Even his victim in this very moment of death, reflected the mayor, had not been able to realize his guilt, and this thought pleased him so much that he burst into a harsh laugh. His wife, mild and frightened, sat opposite to him, engaged as usual with her knitting, and the unexpected sound so startled her that she actually spoke without being spoken to. This suicide, she said, is very terrible, is it not? A stain upon the fair fame of the town, he answered, mocking the babbling chemist. He always permitted himself more license when alone with his wife than at any other time, for he knew the awe in which she held him, and his imitation of the chemist's tone was palpable. Self-murder is a dreadful crime, he said. Dreadful, she agreed. She dropped a stitch in her knitting and paused to pick it up. Dreadful, she sighed again. And I suppose the dear rector will not permit him to be buried in the churchyard. And her amiable and vacant countenance took on an expression of the deepest horror. I expect not, said the mayor and for the first time a real desire seized him to tell his secret, for there was a latent cruelty in his nature that now was wakening to stronger life, and he perceived quite plainly how if he told her she would gasp and shrink before the dreadful knowledge and stare and mutter and presently die, crushed beneath its awful weight. But he set aside the thought or to speak, would be to imperil his own safety. He sat in silence, sipping his whiskey, and his thoughts were pleasant. What if there was one lay dead, branded with the name of suicide? Self-preservation was the first law of nature, and he merely removed a man whose existence threatened his own. Even if there were a god, a point on which the mayor entertained the gravest doubts. Surely he must see quite clearly that even by the silly standard of the world the mayor was certainly no worse than anyone else, and probably a great deal better than most. He finished his whiskey, 
yawned, and observed that it was bedtime. Really, the day had been more trying than he had quite realized, and he felt tired. As he undressed, he pushed the window open and leaned out, enjoying the fragrant sweetness of the night air. He was not used to notice such things, but tonight he did. It all seemed wonderfully quiet and still. This little town that slumbered there so peacefully in the kindly darkness. And then it came into his mind how he could shatter all this peace and serenity by just opening his lips and shouting a certain thing aloud. How they would all stir and buzz like an overturned hive of bees. A policeman passing by paused to throw the light of his lantern over the house, and the mayor called down to him. A nice evening, Tompkins, he said. Anything stirring? Yes, your worship, a lovely night, answered the man. No, your worship, nothing stirring. Good night, Tompkins, said the mayor. Good night, your worship, replied the man. He went stolidly on his way, and the mayor listened to his heavy and slow steps dying away in the distance. It amused him to reflect how different the man's demeanor would have been if he had only known. But he did not know, and he never would, and there lay the joke, and the mayor was so confident in his own strength that again— he was able to play with the idea of dropping into the police station and telling them all about it, till he fell into a gentle and quiet slumber, from which he awoke next morning happy and refreshed. He felt in extra good spirits. When he got to his office, he found intelligence waiting him of the unexpectedly successful completion of some business that would mean a really large sum of money in his pocket. If this had only come a week ago, he reflected, perhaps he might be alive today. But after all, it is as well as it is, for I remember, thought the mayor, that he always annoyed me. Later, he went to a meeting of the council and listened to an interminable discussion on the late sad event which had so disturbed our town and cast so dark a stain upon its fair fame. This phrase was the chemist's contribution to the lengthy argument about the most fitting successor to the office the dead man had held. Some wanted the office that had been so disgraced abolished altogether. The mayor listened to it very patiently amusing himself by picturing the different expressions that would come on each man's face if he were to rise and say, But all your talk is founded on the belief that this man committed suicide, whereas, in truth, I killed him. But this time, bored by the long discussion, he played with the thought so long that suddenly he was aware of a quick fear lest it should change from an amusement to a necessity. He sat upright and called the counselor just then, speaking to order with some asperity, and then he became angry that such an absurd idea should have had power to chill him with so deadly a fear. 
After the meeting was over, he walked away with the rector, of whom he inquired whether there was not some ancient tale of a king who could not keep a secret, and so told it to the reeds on the river bank. The rector said there was, and told him the story, adding that a secret, when of a guilty nature, was a great burden. There are many I've kept, observed the mayor, with a sudden tightening of his grim lips, as he thought of this last one he was keeping so well, and how pale and terrified the rector would look if he told him. But the story of this old burdened king, who in his anxiety for relief from the intolerable burden of his silence, spoke at last to the treacherous reeds, though it aroused his liveliest contempt, yet somehow never left his mind. He found himself thinking of it intently one day, as he stared into the window of a local bicycle-maker who also dealt in phonographs. One of these would have suited the old boy better than his reeds, he reflected as he went away, and that afternoon he left business early and went for a long, solitary walk on the downs above the town. A poignant desire controlled his feet, and though he said to himself that he would not and that he must not, presently he found himself in a position from which he could look down upon the actual scene of the grim tragedy of a few days before. There was the hedge behind which he had crept, there was the ditch in which he had crouched, and there was the little gully down into which the dying man had fallen after receiving the fatal blow. I killed him, said the mayor aloud, and he looked round him, and then half in fear up at the broad blue sky above. But the sky remained untroubled, and the earth unheeding, the sun still shone, all nature still laughed with the joy of early summer. From a distance, a rabbit watched him cautiously, and nearby a bird perched on a bush and sang its loudest. I killed him, he said again, but Lord, where's the satisfaction of saying so, where no one can hear or make any reply? Suddenly he perceived that his forehead was damp, and that he knew that this was because what he had feared had come to pass. That what had been an idle fancy indulged in for amusement had now taken on an aspect of necessity. But I will not speak, he said. I'll keep silence. He struck his hand upon his lips as though he held them treacherous and would chastise them, and he walked straight back to town, keeping his teeth tightly clenched all the way. Opposite the bicycle-makers, he paused again and then went in to inquire about getting a new machine. From bicycles, he went on to talk of phonographs and presently inquired about their cost. It seemed he had some idea of using one in his business to dictate his letters into, and he wished to know if that could be done. The bicycle-maker assured him that it could, and showed him how. But the mayor seemed captious and hard to please, 
Indeed, had not the bicycle maker been an adroit and persistent salesman, the mayor would probably have gone away without making any decision, and as it was, all he would consent to was that one should be sent up to his house for him to try. It was only a passing fancy. I expect it would be more trouble than it would be worth, he said, and the next day he received with an angry growl the information that the phonograph he had ordered was in his study. But after a time, he went and sat in the study, looking oddly at the machine standing on the table. For long he sat there, staring down the brass mouth of the recorder. It had been set up already, so that he knew all he had to do was speak into the trumpet, and his words would be engraved on the wax, ready to be reproduced and spoken back to him at his will. Presently he got up and locked the door and window, and drew the blind as though he were preparing for an afternoon snooze. Then he went back, and picking up the poker, looked sideways at the machine as though he were about to break it into little pieces, and yet were afraid it might understand his purpose and defend itself in some way at once unexpected and terrible. The thought all the time was hot in his mind that if he once told this thing his secret and let it tell it back to him, then once he had heard another voice pronouncing those dread words of guilt and horror, that he would no longer have any desire to speak them aloud in the ear of the world in the way that at first amused him and then obsessed him. Suddenly he dropped the poker and began to talk eagerly, swiftly, very softly, and as thus whispered to the machine with its gulping trumpet ear. A deep peace grew within him, and a sense of certain sweet security. That's done, he said exultingly, as he jumped up the moment he had finished and rushed to the window. Throwing it open, he leaned out to draw in deep breaths of fresh air, open air, and only now, by the intensity of his relief, did he understand how great had been the strain upon him. He remained there for a little while, full of his new sense of perfect security. He enjoyed this sensation of relief and the freshness of the air so much that he decided to stroll around the garden before returning to hear the machine talk and then destroying it forever. And with it the nightmare of oppression and desire that had lain so heavily on him these last few days. He left his study and went into the drawing room where his wife was knitting. Emily, he said, knowing that to her his word was absolute law. I have left the phonograph on the study table. See that no one goes near it. Very well, dear, she answered meekly, and he was well assured of her obedience. Are you going to keep it? she asked. No, he answered violently. They are silly things, stupid, troublesome, idiotic. 
He abused it angrily for a moment or two, deriving a certain pleasure from speaking scornfully of this machine that had witnessed his weakness. No, he concluded, I certainly shall not keep it. I am very glad, said his wife. I've never liked the things. I can't think it right somehow for a voice to be speaking where no one is. Of course, I know it's very clever, but I can't think it right for all of that. Well, mind you see no one touches it, said the mayor. He did not usually give reasons for what he told her to do, but now he added, It is out of order, apparently, for it won't work properly, and I don't want them to be able to say anyone meddled with it. Very well, answered his wife obediently. I will see it is not touched. He heard the renewed click of her knitting needles as he went out, and he was certain that she would never dream of disobeying him. He walked for a few minutes in the garden, feeling an odd pleasure in knowing that his secret was safe in a little wooden box with a sort of trumpet on its top that stood upon his study table. It was good to know the secret was there and no longer on his mind, and good to know, too, to know that in a moment he would return and destroy the box and it together forevermore. But when he went back to the study, the table was bare, and he looked at it for a long time before he went into the drawing room and, standing softly by the door, asked in a low tone, where the phonograph was. Oh, the man came for it from the shop, dear, his wife answered, as still her knitting needles clicked placidly on. I told him you said it was out of order, so he took it away. He said he would soon put it to rights, and he wanted to know if he might bring another one instead. The mayor did not answer, but he came nearer to her going cautiously, holding by the wall, and she watched him as the deer watches the crouching tiger. For it was in his mind that he would kill her, and somehow she understood that quite distinctly. Neither of them spoke as he drew unsteadily nearer, and then she leaped up and fled with her ball of wool bounding grotesquely behind her. She fled, only knowing that she was very greatly afraid, but he made no attempt to follow her. She never stayed till she reached her mother's house, where she spent the night, but in the morning she came back, arriving just as some men brought in the unpleasantly wet body of the mayor that they had just taken from the river, from the pool a little below the old mill. For my part, said the bicycle maker later that day, I'm certain he was not right in his mind. For yesterday night, he sent back a phonograph he said was out of order, and when I came to look at it, I found it had never been started. Now, said the bicycle maker indignantly, can a man be in his right senses when he talks into a machine without setting it going 
and then says it is out of order because it makes no record? For my part, returned the chemist, I regard it as a stain upon the fair fame of the town. I wonder who the consul will appoint mayor. Personally, he considered he had the best right to the position, but the bicycle maker expressed no opinion on the subject. For his part, he thought the builder round the corner, his brother-in-law, ought to be offered the post. As for the late mayor's wife, she put up a specially fine monument to his memory, bearing the text, He giveth his beloved sleep. Later on, she married the chemist. You've been listening to The Avenging Phonograph by E.R. Punchon. I hope there are always stars in your sky, peace in your heart, and wisdom in your thoughts. I've enjoyed being with you, but now I must go. But I hope to be with you again soon. Please be well, and thank you for listening to me.